0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is March 7th, and this is the healthcare edition of the show. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I have healthcare specialist Todd Campbell on the line. Welcome to the show, Todd.
1: Hi, Christine. How are you today? Happy Wednesday.
0: I'm doing great. Are you familiar with the Motley Fool tradition of Fool Olympics No. Tell me about them. Okay, so every other year, The Fool runs its own version of the Olympics, and we're divided up into teams, we name ourselves a country, and we participate in a variety of different physical and mental competitions. So that is what we're in the midst of right now here at Fool HQ, and given that competition is a core value here at The Motley Fool, it gets super heated. So (laughs) you know what today's topic is, Todd. Does it make sense why it was top of mind?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm excited for today's show because we get to take off, Christine, our lab coats and our science hats that we usually wear and put on our C-suite suits and our CEO hats.
0: Yes, we are here today to talk about competition. When multiple drugs are competing for the same patients. How do you differentiate one from another and how can you tell which one will ultimately end up winning the largest patient share? So we took a look at the different ways that we've seen drugs compete in real life and we broke them down into four primary factors of competition. And we'll dive into each one of them and give an example or two. But first, let's take a look at what's at stake here.
1: It's just such a – there's so much at stake, Christine, and we've talked to listeners over the course of the last few years about different problems, challenges that have to be overcome by these companies that are developing these new drugs. First, you've got patent protection, right? So you have a capped, limited – uh, period of time that your product's going to be on the market earning money. So if somebody could come out and out-innovate you or, or whatever. Um, and you know there's a tremendous amount of money at stake. I mean, $330 billion uh, spent on prescription drugs. And when you think about the fact that 90% of drugs that go into clinical trials end up failing and ending up in the dustbin, uh, you want to make sure that the 10% that's, that, that do cross the finish line are as successful as they possibly can be.
0: We spend so much time on this show talking about drugs that haven't even hit the market yet and discussing the clinical trials and the data coming out of them. And so I'm looking forward today to looking a little bit farther down the timeline at what happens when these drugs are actually on the market. I mean, you hit the nail on the head that they only have so much time in which they'll generate money. And so these businesses, they are looking to grab as much market share as they possibly can in order to recoup their investment and also in order to further their R&D spending for drugs to come out in the future. So the very first factor to dig into is kind of a no-brainer. This one is efficacy. How well does the drug work?
1: Right. Can we build a better mouse trap, a better mousetrap than whatever the standard of care currently is for that indication? You know, can we reshape or revolutionize that indication so that we capture all of the money that potentially is up for grabs? And um, Christine, just in in going through and thinking about how to, you know, discuss this with our listeners, probably, and I think you'll probably agree, the, the best example of efficacy and disruption in recent memory is Gilead Sciences and what it did in hepatitis C.
0: Absolutely. When Gilead won approval for its hepatitis C drug, Sovaldi, in 2014, That was a complete game-changer. Previously, patients were looking at drugs that were just not very good at all. They were mostly effective, and they were a pain. But Gilead came out with Savaldi, and it totally changed the game with cure rates of upwards of 90%. And with that, it ate everybody's lunch. There were no other reasonable competitors at that point.
1: Right, you had these old style treatments for decades that include peg, and feron. and I think the functional cure rates of taking those over the course of very long treatment periods was only like 50%, it was like a coin flip. And then in 2011, Vertex got approved a, a drug called Incivic, which at the time was pretty game changing. But even then, the functional cure rate was only about 80%. So when Gilead Science came out with Sovaldi, and then later in the year, Harvoni in 2014, and was able to increase those functional cure rates above 90%. Well, it was game changing, right? You know, I think that you look at this and you think back, okay, why Gilead Science is how they got to that point. Right, Christine? I mean, think about all of the people who are up in arms about how much money Gilead Science has paid to get its hands on the drug that would eventually become Savaldi. And a lot of people scratching their heads about that. But again, they were Doing the, they did the numbers, and they were looking at this saying, if we can do this and we can come up with a, a functional cure rate efficacy that's really so much better than anything that's currently out there, well, then it could be a huge drug. And sure enough, these were huge drugs.
0: Yeah, this drug ended up making Gilead Sciences so much money. I mean, it, it launched it, it basically changed what the story behind Gilead Sciences was. This went from a company that was really just about HIV and it added an entire blockbuster franchise.
1: Yeah, at one point I think they were doing close to twenty billion in annualized sales um just from hepatitis C. And that's pretty that's pretty remarkable. So it goes to show that, you know, front and center on the minds of anyone involved in this business isn't just, um, you know, isn't just the idea of making money, but it's also this whole idea of if we can disrupt by creating something that's really, really works well, this much better drug than will be by the nature of it will end up being successful on its own.
0: Gilead Sciences in hepatitis C is a pretty obvious example, but it's worth pointing out that there is a little bit of nuance here. For example, you see pretty frequently two different drugs competing in the same market, and one will claim that in its trials it had, say, a 90% cure rate versus the other one only had 80%. Unless you actually have a head-to-head trial, it can sometimes be hard to tell whether the one drug actually is better, and that all comes down to trial design. Do you want to dive into that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I'm so happy that you brought that up because I think it's an important thing to remember because, you know, I mean, obviously the we have different hurdles of efficacy to clear that, you know, we can actually categorize, oh, is it how, F, how, how good it really is this drug? You know, if you're comparing it to the easiest hurdle, which is a placebo, so I'm doing nothing versus I'm taking this drug. Um, okay, well, that tells me something, but it doesn't necessarily tell me that this option is better than, say, the current standard of care, unless, of course, you do a a study that actually compares the two of them head to head, right? And we don't know that. The other thing, too, that I think investors have to remember is that you can demonstrate efficacy in multiple ways. And we've talked about this in the show before with surrogate endpoints versus the actual, um, say, overall survival. So using, say, response rate, Versus overall survival or progression-free survival. Talking mostly about cancer drugs here, Uh, but you could also look at it in autoimmune disease and say, you know, are we, you know, what's the hurdle that we're actually trying to achieve to show that our phase three trial pans out? So I think that investors have to be cognizant of that.
0: Absolutely. So that is efficacy. Let's turn to our second factor of competition, which is safety.
1: Safety is an interesting, right? Because you're looking at it, you're saying, okay, I want to build a drug that works better uh, as far as efficacy is concerned, but it doesn't really do me any good if I pick the wrong target or I use a mechanism of action that that isn't going to be isn't going to be safe. You know, if I if I launch a drug uh, that I think is going to be competitive because it delivers solid efficacy, but then safety signals show up. And, you know, it's basically going to collapse the commercial opportunity of that drug. And thinking about, you know, a good example for our listeners. Um, turning right back to Gilead Sciences, uh, they actually had a drug that wasn't nearly as successful as their Hepatitis C franchise, and that's Zydelig, um, which is a, a drug for chronic um, lymphocytic leukemia. And that won approval in 2004, around the same time as another competing drug in the same indication uh, from Johnson & Johnson and Abbey, uh, which we've talked about on the show before, called Imbravica.
0: Yeah, these two were fierce competitors with one another. They were both targeting the same unmet need. It was an enormous multi-billion dollar indication. They were hoping that they'd be able to expand these drugs into earlier lines and potentially other cancers. but. Neither drug was perfect, and safety ended up being a huge differentiator between the two of them. In March 2016, Zydelig's expansion trials had to be halted, which caused Gilead to have to discontinue the further development of this drug and add a black box warning, which is the FDA's most severe warning, on the label for the drug itself. And it just decimated Zydelig's commercial opportunity.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I remember even thinking in 2013, before this drug launched, I was writing that this could, this ideally could be a blockbuster drug. It could have billion dollar uh, potential. This is a multi-billion dollar opportunity, especially if you can move it up into earlier and earlier lines of treatment. Um, it, but when all was said and done, um, you know, Zydelig's mechanism of action, it was inhibiting something called P13K delta uh, versus Imbravica's mechanism of action inhibiting um, the BTK uh, protein. Um, BTK turned out to be safer. Um, there were some, you know, unfortunately, some some very sad um, um, fatalities caused um, in the trials evaluating zydelic and I think that you know as a result they had to to, to shutter the development has, and as and zydelic while it's still on the market today because it you know there are some patients obviously that, that could still respond well to it uh, it's it's basically a niche drug I mean this once once was going to be a billion dollar blockbuster I think last year the sales were uh, maybe like 150 million.
0: Versus Imbruvica's sales, which were $2.5 billion in 2017. And something that I really want to emphasize here is that you have to consider the doctor's perspective. From that perspective, safety actually matters even more than efficacy. Think for a second about the Hippocratic Oath, to do no harm to your patients. So even the most well-intentioned doctor is going to care more about avoiding bad outcomes than missing out on the best possible outcome and using a slightly more effective but maybe more dangerous drug. I think it's the logical choice every time to go for the safer drug. And so it really does matter, and labeling is also super important. That black box warning that I talked about, that's a blemish. Even if the black box is just to maybe narrow the patient pool slightly, having it on there is something that makes doctors very jittery and a little bit more hesitant to prescribe drugs that have some sort of safety hiccups.
1: Mm. You know, Christine, that just made me think of, you know, as as investors, whenever we see a press release that comes out touting uh, this great efficacy, I always, and you probably do too, scan down about halfway and start looking for adverse events. And I think that that's a good reminder to all all of our uh, listeners that when they're looking through phase three or phase two trial data, you want to not just focus on that efficacy. You want to go down there and you want to look at, you know, okay, were there any, I'm going to call it most interested, Christine, you probably are too, with the severe adverse events. So that's grade three or higher events. And I'm, I'm, of all of them, really interested in what's happening with liver toxicity. So those are kind of some of the things that you want to try if you're trying to figure out, well, will this drug be better than the other drug? Absent a head-to-head comparison, you know, those are a couple of things to take a look at.
0: Yep. And one small tip for listeners that are trying to dig into these details you'll sometimes see uh, these adverse events referred to as SAE or AE, the acronym for uh, severe adverse event and adverse event. So if you're Control Fing through any press releases and you're not finding anything when you spell out the words, try the acronym. Okay. So, yeah,
1: you know what, Christine, before we jump, uh, one more point just to follow on the back of that, which is just. In, important to remember too that the safety hurdle will differ depending on the indication, right? So you're going to have a slightly different safety hurdle for someone who's have, say, uh, late stage cancer with very few treatment options versus, say, um, you know, toenail fungus.
0: Yep, absolutely. And even in different lines of the same indication, it's a little bit more acceptable to have a questionable side effect profile if you're later down, down the line in treatment and patients have fewer options left. So, our third factor of competition that we wanted to talk about today is price. And this one is, I think, slightly less obvious than the others. And in particular, it needs to be balanced with the other two, meaning efficacy and safety, because price alone isn't going to cut it if you do have a drug, say, like Savaldi. Savaldi was able to price itself very high compared to what was on the market because it just knocked it out of the park on safety and efficacy. But as it turns out, that wasn't the end of the story, and eventually it did face competition from other hepatitis C drugs in this next generation wave of more safe and more effective drugs based on price.
1: Right. AbbVie and Merck, both of them. And you can imagine, Christine, just being in this in the war room of these uh, C-suites trying to figure this out because they're looking at it and they're saying, OK, we know that we're going up against Sovaldi and Harboni, which are incredibly efficacious drugs with, with solid safety profiles. We think we can match or at least come up similarly to them on those two things. So then how do we differentiate to make sure that we're able to win the market share away from them? And that the next logical choice then would be on price. If I, Can I battle uh, on price? Can I undercut them, still make a nice profit for my investors um, and, and capture uh, a bulk of the market share?
0: One strategic way that companies can do this is by negotiating directly with the PBMs to get preferred access to their formularies, which essentially blocks out your competition if your drug is listed on, say, Express Scripts preferred formulary, and your competition isn't.
1: Right, and that's what Vicarapac, which was Abby's first hepatitis C drug, when that came out at the, I think it won approval at the end of 2014, maybe launched in 2015, when they um, won approval. What they decided to do is, we can't necessarily beat Gilead's drugs on these other things like efficacy and safety, but what we can do is we can offer a, a bargain basement price um, to Express Scripts, and then you know basically get all of the business that way, and that's exactly what ended up happening. I think Savaldi was priced at 84 grand uh, for for the treatment. Um, I think Harvoni was 94 grand. And Vicarapax wholesale acquisition costs came in around 83500 but their net cost was probably much, much lower than that. And, of course, that forces then Gilead to have to compete on price and lower their prices. Then when Merck's drug came out, compete again. And then fast forward to 2017 with AbbVie's most recent drug that just launched. And I think that that drug is priced at less than 30000 for for a eight-week course of treatment.
0: and This is why, when you're looking at Gilead Science's results, you see hepatitis C sales falling off a cliff. Not only are they treating patients and curing them, which effectively uh, makes your market smaller and smaller, but this price battle has made margins so tight for all of these companies that the market is not nearly the size that it once was.
1: Right. A smaller market. And then, of course, competing on price to try and maintain market share, driving down the revenue on the on the unit volume that you are driving out the door. I think from an investor standpoint, you're looking at it and you have to recognize that drugs aren't your normal thing. When you're looking at this industry and investing in this industry for the first time, one of the things you have to realize right out of the gate is this isn't like building a widget and saying, okay, I'm building a widget, and then I'm going to mark it up 15%, and that's going to be my profit margin. You know, 90% of the drugs are going to fail in your clinical trials. So you need to not only price for the cost to produce that drug once it wins approval, but you need to absorb the cost on all your failed drugs, and you need to price it to be able to, to fund future development of whatever the next innovative treatment is that you're going to launch.
0: Yep, and of course, all the way, you have to be battling the public outcry about drug pricing. So, for sure, this is something that drug makers and doctors, payers, pretty much everybody in this country is thinking about, is drug pricing. But our fourth and final factor of competition is one that I don't think is really thought about as much, and this is the convenience factor.
1: Right. I mean, and it actually dovetails into these other things pretty well, because if you can make a drug more convenient to take, um, you can define convenience as, say, the dosing schedule is more favorable or the time to take the drug, uh, if it's an infusion drug, shrinks, then you maybe can eliminate some of the side effects that come along with taking the drug and possibly carve out some of the costs that are associated with it. Um, and I was thinking, you know, this past week, you and I were talking before the show about what we're seeing going on right now in the ongoing battle for market share among PD-1 uh, cancer treatments. And that's just just been a, an absolute brawl since these drugs won approval in 2014, Bristol-Myers, uh, Optivo and uh, Birkin Company's Keytruda.
0: I'm so glad that we're talking about the PD-1 battle in an episode about competition, because this has been one of the most interesting brawls to watch over the past many years. Um, Before we dive into the PD-1 battle, I do want to go back and emphasize the point that you made about convenience being a factor that plays into all of the other three that we talked about. Efficacy, safety, and price. You were completely right about safety and lowering that side effect profile and price. I, I also agree. If you you are treating people less often, then you're bringing down all sorts of costs, from the direct cost to even less direct costs, like time spent in a hospital or fewer office visits, um, even something like fewer disposables for whatever is used in the delivery of the drug itself. And I'll also add one more, which is how it plays into efficacy. Real-life adherence is kind of tough, and sometimes you'll find in the actual data for a drug that is on the market, it's not as effective as it was in trials, and a huge part of that is because people aren't good at following directions, and so if a drug is completely burdensome to take on the prescribed schedule, people might not be very good at following that schedule, and that can minimize the efficacy of the drug itself. So if you can make it more convenient to take, you're decreasing the chance that noncompliance is going to mess with your efficacy. Absolutely. All that being said... That's an awesome point, Christine. All that being said, PD-1s, I'm going to kick it to you for this one, Todd.
1: Okay. Um, Probably just important to have a little background of what PD-1s are. We talked about in the past. Uh, It's a checkpoint protein uh, on immune systems, uh, on T-cells. What oftentimes can happen with cancer is they'll hijack a mechanism that basically flips a switch on that PD-1 protein and tells the T cell, don't attack me, I'm a healthy cell. So by inhibiting these PD-1s, what they do is they inhibit the activity of PD-1, they basically remove or eliminate the ability for the cancer cell to hijack that mechanism.
0: Yeah, and so uh, Bristol and Merck had been neck and neck in developing these two types of drugs for quite a while, and eventually it came to look like Keytruda was probably pulling ahead, um, specifically in first-line lung cancer, which is an enormous indication we're now waiting for some interim data uh, to see if maybe OpDevo can catch up here. But one way in which OpDevo was able to get uh, some pretty good results recently was just yesterday when the FDA approved a four week dosing for OpDevo. Previously, it had been dosed every two weeks. So going from every two weeks to every four weeks is doubling the convenience, essentially. Um, for reference, Keytruda is dosed every three weeks. And so This will be for a majority of its approved indications, and that includes melanoma and second-line lung cancer and bladder cancer. And Right now, it's the only PD-1 drug, and there are a lot of them out there besides just the two that we're talking about, that's approved for a four-week dosing schedule.
1: Yeah, and this is really a fascinating development. People are going to have to watch the next couple quarters to see whether or not Opdivo starts to get back some of its mojo. You mentioned that Keytruda had um, one approval in first-line use. Uh, in non-small lung cancer, that basically caused sales of Keytruda just to skyrocket. And octavo sales in the U.S. have pretty much flatlined uh, since then because you know you're using Keytruda now ahead of Optivo you're using Keytruda in the first line setting and Optivo isn't used in the first line setting so right now Bristol Myers management saying okay well how do we make sure that we sure up the market share that we do have in these later lines of treatment until we know that we can actually compete in the first line and there's an opportunity that they're exploring to be able to do that but they don't you know that's not approved yet so you know you look at it and you say okay well if i can if I can make this a more convenient to the infusion centers, um, the, the cancer infusion centers where these are being dosed, well then maybe then I can make sure that I'm, I'm solidifying my relationship with, with those places and, I'm, and this drug continues to get used instead of Keytruda. That will be very interesting to see how this plays out over the next couple of quarters, because as you mentioned, Opdeva was every two weeks and it was a one hour infusion. Now it's, it can be either either every two weeks or every four weeks for a half hour infusion. Now that infusion time matches Keytruda, but like you mentioned, uh, the four week dosing schedule is better than Keytruda's three week.
0: Yeah, if you look at the incentives from the perspective of these infusion centers, this looks pretty favorable that you have drugs that take the same amount of time to do the infusion. But one of them now has to be done less frequently. And that's a good thing. Some analysts are saying that this could help it expand into the maintenance and the adjuvant therapy settings. So this is yet another example in this ferocious battle between Keytruda and Opdivo, where one drug is largely ahead and the other one starts to catch up. And it's really just been fascinating to watch. I believe we did an entire episode on this battle about a year ago, if I'm remembering the timeline correctly. So any listeners that are interested in some of the details about the development of these two drugs and how the situation came to be the way it is today, shoot us a note at industryfocus at and I'd be happy to send that episode along.
1: Yeah, and just one final takeaway, too, from my end, Christine, just to, to, to why we're spending time talking about this. Optivo sales in the fourth quarter alone were $1.36 billion, <laughs> and uh, Keytruthers in the fourth quarter were $1.3 So they are literally neck and neck.
0: But the growth rates are totally different. As you alluded to earlier, the Optivo's Q4 sales were only up 4% year over year versus Keytruda's were up 169%. So, for two nominal numbers that are fairly similar, the growth rates are totally different. But this battle is clearly not over. Alright, so we are wrapping up for today. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode on competition, and wish me some luck in the fool Olympics. Uh, we are going through the end of this week. Currently, my country is in first place, so very excited, hoping to keep it that way. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by the marvelous Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Harjes. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Oh,